Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. There's a story that's often told, you may well have come across it before, of a bunch of blind men in this village who come across an animal that none of them have encountered before. There are are six men in total, and they're trying to figure out and describe to each other what this animal is like. And uh, the animal's an elephant, right? And so each of them grabs a different part of the elephant. So the first one, he's kind of feeling free, he feels something, and he ends up getting hold of the trunk of the elephant, and he's kind of feeling, he's like, you know what, I think this animal's a lot like a snake, it's kind of uh, long and thin and uh, a bit wriggly, that, that's what the animal is like. And then his friend says, I've got no idea what you're talking about, this animal is nothing like a snake, because he's grabbed hold of the tusk, and he's like, no, this, this is a lot harder than a snake, this is more like a spear, this is a weird spear-like animal and the next one's got the ear and he's like I, th- I think it's a fan it kind of flaps about a bit and is big and wide and then one of them who's got hold of the leg he's just confused by everything that's going on it's like are you sure this is even an animal it just feels like a tree a massive tree trunk and you've got another one kind of on the side of the elephant and he's like it's a wall it's none of the things you're talking about and then the final one who's got hold of the tail of the elephant says no it's a rope and they're all arguing about what this animal is like and obviously the point of the story is none of them can see the entirety of the thing they've all got their little bit and from their little bit they think that they can extrapolate and draw conclusions about the whole thing now I've heard this story told a whole load of times and usually when people tell the story What they're trying to do is make a point about how we see the world, about different religions, different spiritualities, different philosophies, different ways of life. And they'll say something like this. They'll say, well, Christians see the world one way, and they might be like the people who've got hold of the trunk. They've kind of seen something, but then you've got uh, Hindus who they might have got the leg, and they've seen something a bit different. And then you've got Muslims who they're feeling the side of it. Uh, And everyone's got their own perspective, but none of you have quite got the whole picture so you should all listen to each other you should all take on board what each other's saying and you should all get along with one another that's what people tend to say when they tell the story I'm just going to pause for a moment and just ask you to reflect on what do you think about that what do you think about that kind of parable it is isn't it of seeing the world do you agree with it do you disagree with it are you somewhere in the middle um I think there's a little bit that's helpful about it because the helpful element to it is to say, look, none of us know everything, so having a bit of humility is always a good thing, right? But that story, I think it's very much the spirit of our age. It's very much the the flavour of how people think about the world these days. I don't know if you've heard these kind of phrases bandied around, live your truth. The idea that something can be true for you but not true for me, because it connects with you. It resonates with you. It seems correct to you. So you live your version of the truth, and then I can live my version of the truth, and we can all get along happily. I started thinking, if the word true 
is going to have any meaning whatsoever. How can that be? How can it be that there's something that is true for you unless that thing actually corresponds with how things are out there? If you say, this is true for me, but it isn't how things are, how is it true for you? And if what you're saying actually does correspond to how things are, then why isn't that true for me as well? If that's how things are, surely it's true for everybody. A musician, Lecrae, did a song all about this. He called the song Truth. I just want to share a few of his lyrics because I think they really help kind of put to bed this idea that we can all have a separate truth. He says this, Man, some folks say all truth is relative. It just depends on what you believe. By the way, I'm not going to try rapping this. Don't, <laughs> don't expect that to happen. That is not going to be the case. <laughs> you know, hey man, ain't no way to know for sure who God is or what's really true. But that means you believe your own statement, that there's no way to know what's really true. You're saying that statement is true. You're killing yourself. If what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, what if my truth says yours is a lie? Is it still true? Come on, man. You see, he's got a point, hasn't he? If truth is just whatever you want it to be, if it's just what resonates with you, if that's what truth is, and someone tries to tell you that, then they're trying to tell you that that should be the case for you as well. So they've completely undermined themselves and they've gone back to the idea that there are some things that are universally the case. There are some things that are true for everyone. And when I think about that story that I told at the start about the elephant, what strikes me about that story whenever I hear it is, flipping heck, that is an arrogant story to tell, isn't it? If you're the one telling that story then what you're saying is you've got all these people, they're all blind, they can't see what's going on, they're idiots, they think it's a snake and a, a tree and a rope, but I'm the one who can tell you it's an elephant. And when they try applying it, they'll say, oh yeah, all those Christians, all those Hindus, all those Muslims, they've got their ideas about how the world is, but they don't really see the whole picture let me tell you how it really is. And so there's an arrogance to it, isn't there? Saying, so, yeah, everyone else only gets it partially, but I know that there's more to it. So it's got the same kind of claim to universality. Now, the claims that are made in the Bible, and particularly the claims that Jesus makes, they're not claims about personal spirituality. Jesus didn't come to say, hey, I've got some ideas that might connect and resonate with you and might be true for you. What Jesus has to say are claims about the very cosmic nature of reality. He's trying to explain to, her, to us how things are. And if he's right about what he says, then the implications of that are not just for those people who think, yeah, that kind of seems true for me, the implications apply to everybody because he's describing objective truth. So over these few weeks that we're in at the moment in this series, we're looking at a few of those things. We've looked at the scripture as the one authoritative place that we can know we're getting the truth of God. We've looked at grace as the way by which we can be saved, the only way. 
we've looked at faith as the way that we can access that grace. Today we've got another of the foundations. We're going to look at Christ alone. Only Jesus is the way of salvation. Only Jesus is the one who shows us what God is like. Only Jesus can give us eternal life. And then next week we'll finish off the series looking at it's all only for the glory of God. It's not for our glory or the glory of others. The glory all goes to God. So we're going to look at John chapter 14 to do this. So I'd invite you to turn there if you've got a Bible. I'm going to mainly focus on just one verse, and that's verse 6. But I'm going to read a little bit more just to give you an idea of context. So I'm going to read from verses 1 to 6. Yeah, so listen, it starts with Jesus talking. And this is the night before he was crucified and he was teaching his disciples. And this is what it says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That's going to be our focus this morning. And let's start by talking about Jesus is the way. And he's particularly talking about the way of salvation. Later in that verse, he says, none may come to the Father except through me. Now, I've recently been reading a bedtime story to my daughter. She's six years of age, and it's an adventure story. And you've got this group of characters who've got somewhere they want to get, and they go through all kinds of trials and tribulations along the way. At one point in the story, they come to a forest. And into this forest, there's a number of different paths that lead into the forest. There's a main kind of old forest road. There's a different track that's been made. There's the river road. There's different ways through the forest that the characters can choose from. However, when when they're arguing about it, it doesn't mean that they can just choose any route. They've got doubts. They've got worries. They've got questions. Which of these routes are safe? Which ones will actually take us through the forest all the way to the other side? How could they know? How could they be sure about the route that they're going to take? Well, what they'd really want to happen is someone who's been on the other side of the forest to come through it and say, hey, yes, you see this route? Yeah, this route goes all the way. This route is fine. This route can get you where you want to go. And it turns out in that story that many of the paths don't. So Some of the the, the trails, they kind of break down in the middle of the forest and don't work. Some of them lead into enemies. Some lead into marshy ground. And there's actually only one road that leads through the forest. And it's like that in life, isn't it? We see all these different options for salvation. We see all these different proposals that people put forward. If you do this you'll be all right. If you do this, you can get to know God. If you do this, you will be saved. And they might define saved 
a little bit differently. But uh, you'd have Muslims tell you about the five pillars of Islam. And if you do those good works and if you do them faithfully, then you'll be all right. You'll be saved. You'll be good with God. You hear about the eightfold path in Buddhism. You hear about the Jewish ceremonial law. You might hear stuff that's not from a religious perspective. It might be uh, about having enlightened experiences through hallucinogenic drugs. It might be trying your best to be a very, very good person. Lots of people will tell you, this is the way for everything to be all right. The problem is, from our perspective, how do we know if they're right? Well, what we need is someone who's been at the other side to come through and tell us this is the way. Well, Jesus came from the Father. Jesus eternally has been with the Father in heaven, and he came incarnate. God become flesh. He's the one who knows. He's the one who sees the other end, and he can tell us, you see all these options, all these paths, all these routes, they don't get you where you want to go. They might, they might mean you do some good things along the way, but they don't ultimately lead to the Father. There is only one way to the Father. And the reason that all those other paths don't do it isn't because kind of they're, they're fundamentally uh, evil or anything like that. It's just that they don't address the main problem. The main problem is that we're cut off from God by our sin. Our sin has put a barrier between us. So unless something deals with our sin, it cannot lead us to God. It's like, imagine you're in a court of law. Imagine you've committed a mega crime. You've just been found guilty. The judge is about to hand down a sentence. And you're like, right, hang on a second, right, judge. Don't worry about that, because I've got an idea now. I'm going to do some meditation. I'm going to do some good works. I'm going to turn my life around. So that'll be all right, won't it? And you can imagine the judge being like, well, crack on with that. It's not a bad thing to do. But hey, there's still this crime you've committed. It needs paying for. The debt needs paying. Jesus didn't just say, hey everyone, I know the way. He didn't say, I can show you the way. He said, I am the way. There is no way that from a human starting point can get us to God. But Jesus himself came to be the way. Jesus came to deal with that problem of sin, and that's what he did as he died on the cross. Because it's humans who sinned, so only humans should be the ones to take the rap for sin. But the size and scale of it is so colossal, only God could do it. Jesus, the God man, took all the sin. He died for us. And when he died on the cross, in the temple there was a curtain that separated ordinary people from the place where the presence of God was. And when Jesus died, that curtain was torn open. It's a picture of the way being made back into relationship with God for us. So let's think about what we do with this statement. Jesus is the way. Let me invite you, if you want to have relationship with God, if you want to be saved, if you want to know the Father, then come to Jesus. He is the only way. Put your trust in him and what he's done for you. There is no other way to be saved. But also, let's think about this. Shouldn't this light a fire under our evangelism? 
Shouldn't this make us think about sharing this faith that we have? If there is a way to know God, and if there's only one way, and that way is Jesus, and we know about it, and we've got this good news, then surely that motivates us to get out there and to tell people, tell the people we care about, tell the people we've never met, tell everyone, because the world is perishing, and the only hope is Jesus. So let's make sure we're active and fervent in sharing this news. Jesus is the way. The second thing that Jesus says in this statement is, I am the truth. Jesus says he is the truth. Now, all those blind men, regardless of what the people telling the story would say, they were all wrong. They weren't just kind of partially right. The, the elephant isn't a tree. It isn't a spear, and it isn't a rope. They were saying things that were factually incorrect. And that's always going to be the way, isn't it, when people are making contradictory claims. If I say one thing and you say the opposite, we can't both be right. Now, it's possible we're both wrong, or it's possible that one of us is right, but we can't both be right if we're saying the opposite, unless you just retreat to that sentimental, oh, well, truth only means it works for you. But if you actually have any sense of truth as an objective thing, which is the way Jesus spoke about truth, you can't both be right. I want to introduce you to someone to illustrate this point. I've brought him along in my bag, just bear with me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I borrowed this off my son this morning. Borrowed, yeah, borrowed. (laughs) I might give him back. Um, My my, my son is nine now, but when he was little, my son named this cuddly toy... And the name he chose for it was Donk. And the reason he chose Donk is because he would insist to me that this is a donkey. (laughs) And then I would say to him, I don't think it is a donkey. I think it's a dog. And he said, no, 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 it's definitely a donkey. And we spent more time than I'm willing to admit (laughs) arguing the point on this, he was three, I was in my 30s, but I wanted to get it in his head. It's not a donkey. And he wanted to get it in my head. It is a donkey. And so we were making contradictory claims about the identity of this cuddly toy. I'll just put him here for the time being. It's the same with God, though. You've got different people in the world who will make different contradictory claims about God. So in Hinduism, they might have one supreme God, but they talk about thousands of manifestations of this God who you would call God. In the New Age way of seeing life, they talk about the divinity as something found within each one of us that we need to access. Buddhism would traditionally speak of there not being a God, and it's a search for enlightenment. In Islam, they think about one transcendent God overall who's at a distance from what goes on in this world. In Christianity, we speak about an infinite but personal God who does get involved in this world. You get atheists who tell you God doesn't exist at all. You get some agnostics who just say, I don't know. You get other agnostics who say, I don't think you can know. I don't think anyone can know whether there's a God or not. Think about all those claims. Can they really be like those blind men feeling parts of an elephant? Can they all have part of the truth? They're saying the opposite to each other. Just like this can't be a donkey and a dog, 
God can't be all of those things. One could be true, could all be wrong, but they can't all be true. So given that, given all these competing claims about God, how can we know the truth? How can we know what God is really like? Well, the Bible talks about you can know God from creation, kind of, vaguely, you get a sense there's something beyond this world, but it only takes you so far. What you need is something much more precise about who God is. Now, try a little thought experiment with me, okay? One of my best friends going up was a guy called Jonathan Pearson. Now, I've lost contact with him. I've not spoke to him for decades. But I imagine, as I'm telling this, there could be a scenario where someone in this room thinks, Jonathan Pearson? Yeah, I know a guy called Jonathan Pearson. He's about your age, Tom. Maybe with, maybe I know your friend. Maybe I know this kid that you grew up with. And we'd have a conversation, and we'd be going back and forth, and we'd be sharing things about my memories of Jonathan, your knowledge of Jonathan now, and we'd be trying to figure out, are we talking about the same person? Well, how could we resolve it? Perhaps we could resolve it if one of us pulled out a photograph and said, hey, this is who I'm talking about. Is that who you're talking about as well? We'd pull out an image, we'd look at that photo, and we'd be able to see whether we're on the same page. And Jesus functions in the way of that image, that photograph. Here are some of the things the Bible says about Jesus. In John 1, 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, that's talking about Jesus, he has made him known. Colossians 1, 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John 14, 9, that's the same chapter that we're looking at this morning, Jesus went on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is that image. Jesus is the one that in any conversation about God, we can hold up his life, his actions, his character, his person, and say, when I'm talking about God, this is who I mean. Is that who you mean as well? Jesus is the one who came from the Father to show what he is like. And think about what he shows of God. Think about how he shows the love of God. When he met with the woman who was caught in adultery and they wanted to stone her to death, And then he said, well, let the one who hasn't sinned throw the first stone. And they awkwardly shuffle away. And he looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. The love and grace that he shows. Think about the holiness of God that he shows. That he could stand up in front of a crowd, including his enemies, and say, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I mean, that's quite a thing to do, isn't it? I can imagine if I did that, if if I tried to flex and was like in a big crowd, look, have any of you ever seen me do something wrong? You'd all have your hands up. Everyone would be jumping at the opportunity. It'd be the same if you did it. But Jesus could say it and no one had a thing to say. Perfectly holy. Think about how he shows the wrath of God when you had the Pharisees and the religious elites using their power to push others down and the way he'd let them have it. Think about the compassion of God that he shows us. He was on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's a pretty important mission. 
And yet on the way, there's a couple of blind guys calling out for mercy. And he has the time to stop what he's doing and engage with them and talk to them. He has compassion. Think about how he shows us the power of God, calming the storm with just a word. Think about how he shows the wisdom of God. When people asked him all these trick questions, he knew exactly the thing to say. He shows us a God whose fundamental nature is to give of himself. If we were inventing a God, we'd think of a God who wanted to take from everyone. But Jesus shows us a God most fundamentally on the cross who's willing to lay himself down and give of himself for others. Jesus is the image. He's the one who shows us the truth of God. And Jesus is the only image. In Matthew 11, it says, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to who the Son chooses to reveal him. It's only those that the Son has revealed the Father to who know the truth about God. Years ago, I was walking through Covent Garden in London, and I was approached by a guy who was a Harry Krishna monk, and his opening line was, would you like to know the truth? And I stopped, and I had a chat with him. But my reply was like, you know what? I've actually found the truth already. And he said, oh, are you a Christian? <laughs> I was like, I am. How did you know? <laughs> and he said, well... I get a lot of people who walk on who don't want to stop and chat with me, but uh, of the ones who do, most people are like, okay, yeah, tell me the truth. But whenever I meet a Christian, they tell me that they've already found the truth. I was like, funny that, isn't it? Like, (laughs) have you ever wondered why that might be? Um, But we found the truth. We have confidence that what Jesus has given us is the truth of God. And while other people might be um, scrambling around trying to to know, like the the men trying to work out what this elephant was, in the gospel, it's like Jesus has opened our eyes. He's given us this sight. Wow, this is how it is. And you might think, isn't it a bit arrogant to say you have the truth? And I think we've got arrogance all mixed up. I I think we, we don't really understand where humility is and where arrogance is. But G.K. Chesterton really helps us here. Let me just read from him. I think this is brilliant. He says, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. But I think it's brilliant because what he's saying is if God has revealed something, then that's the one thing we can have confidence in. And when it comes to ourselves and our own abilities and our own ambitions, we should be very humble. But it it flips it on its head. It's actually quite arrogant to take what God's revealed as true and say, well, actually, so that I can appear all um, kind of enlightened, I'll just throw some doubt on what God's revealed. That's not the way to do it. We can have full conviction of the truth that God's shown us in Christ and then be humble in our personalities and how we live it out. So Jesus is the truth. Let's dive deep in our study with him. Let's take the time to get into the Bible. Let's take the time to discuss it with one another, to engage with him deeply and get to know him well. 
And let's let the revealed truth be the foundation. So often, people will see something in the Bible and think, right, I've got to square this with all these other things that I believe to be true, and I'm going to kind of weigh the Bible against everything else. Let the Bible be the foundation stone that you weigh everything else against. And when you're sharing your faith, let the truth in the Bible about Christ be your starting point. Very few people are won to Christ by our clever intellectual arguments. But as you show them Jesus, that's how people are won. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And thirdly, Jesus is the life. He says, I am the life. And I think there are two aspects here. He's telling us that he is the only way to have eternal life. And he's telling us that he's the only way to have life to the full now. So let's talk about the eternal life. This week I was at a funeral service for a Christian lady. And what I've noticed about Christian funerals is how different they are to every other funeral I've ever been to. There's a different atmosphere. There's a different hope. Different things have been talked about. People hold themselves in a different way. Why? Because there's a genuine, fundamental belief that this isn't the end. Now, there's still sadness because we miss the person, but we know that they've gone to be with Jesus in heaven now and will be resurrected with him on the last day. In Romans 6, 23, there's the promise. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how can we be sure about that? Because lots of people talk about, oh, going to be in a better place or looking down on us now. and It gets quite sentimentalised. But there's something different about it in what Jesus says. Because it's rooted in something that actually happened. The resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus himself rose from the dead, it gives, gives us a firm foundation to believe that we too and our loved ones in Christ will be raised with him. Usually the way it goes when a religious leader dies is that their tomb becomes a kind of shrine and their followers go and spend time to get close to the one who they'd once followed. That didn't happen with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Because his early followers had no interest in going to his tomb. Why not? Because he's not there anymore. Because he rose again. The case for the resurrection is strong historically. There have been numbers of times, let me highlight two of them, uh, Frank Morrison and Lee Strobel were, were both sceptics and they both set out to write a book that would disprove the resurrection and so quash Christianity. Frank Morrison was a lawyer, so he used all his best loyally techniques of gathering up the evidence to make the case against the resurrection. Lee Strobel, years later, he's a journalist. Similar thing. He uses journalistic techniques to gather all the evidence and make the case against. Do you know what happened to both of them in the process of researching and writing their book? They ended up writing a very different book to what they thought. Because as they looked at all the evidence, they were like, this is overwhelming. He must have risen from the dead. Both of them came to the same conclusion and gave their life to Jesus. If you want to look into it more, I'd recommend reading one or both of their books. Frank Morrison wrote Who Moved the Stone? Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can have hope, true hope, for eternal life. And we can also have eternal life now. In John 17 verse 3, it says, this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life starts now because it's life in the presence of God. We can know God. We can have God's presence with us every day of our lives. Living life in relationship with God transforms the life we live now. We're made from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. I wonder if any of you remember the first time you saw a 3D movie? It's kind of mad, isn't it? See, I've been watching like this for, for ages. Whoa, the things are like popping out of the screen. It's a new experience. It adds an extra dimension into what you see. Life with Jesus is something like that. We've been going through life not knowing what we've been missing. And then the presence of God adds this new dimension. It's like, whoa, how did I miss that? Lois Tverberg says, following Christ is what gives our lives here eternal meaning and purpose. How can we forget to share that with people? The world is full of people who see no meaning in life here on earth. Jesus is the life, so let's live that life to the full. Let's lean into that relationship with him. And let's think about death and the end slash not the end. We don't need to fear death because we have a hope that Christ has conquered it and there's a resurrection to come. So what we've learned this morning is that Jesus alone is the way of salvation. That Jesus alone can show us the truth of God. And that in Jesus alone is true life now and forever. My, my worry sometimes for us is that we want to play nice. And we want to play nice so much that we've lost a bit of confidence in this truth that Christ alone is the way. It's like our eyes have been opened. It's like we've been given sight of the elephant and yet we've not got the guts to say to these other blind men, lads, it's an elephant. So we're like, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe it is a tree trunk. Maybe it is a rope. God in Christ has shown us the truth. He's given us the way. He's offered us eternal life. And what we have in him is so good. And the stakes are too high for us to mess about. 